Welcome to In the Figure Bit, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, Manager Editor of PL. Um, normally, we'll kick off the podcast with That Was the Week That Was, and I'll run through the news. Um, however, really, this week, there's only one item on the agenda, and it's back, baby. We think. Volatility. So um, we're going to go straight in with my guests, and um, I'm joined by David Mercer, CEO of Elmet's Group, and to inject some um, intelligent market analysis into the uh, conversation, Joel Kruger, currency strategist from Elmet's Group. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Morning, Colin. Morning, mate. So um, we've done our elbow bump, um, fist bump, toe tap. I'm sure others exist. Um, Joel has been sensible enough to actually dial into this rather than try and catch some horrible disease. But obviously some horrible disease is the centre of everything we're talking about really at the moment. It's driving everything, isn't it, Joel? So what do you sort of see? I mean, how do you see the market in terms of its ongoing reaction to the coronavirus um, outbreak? Well, uh, I mean, I think that a lot of this right now has to do with uh, the unknown. Um, I think that ultimately things will start to settle down as we head into the second quarter. I think the seasonality will start to factor in as we get into warmer climates, the virus will start to calm. Um, But unfortunately, right now, there is the fear and panic. And so for the moment, um, you know, I suspect that, you know, we're going to see some setbacks in Q1 uh, from uh, the virus. And I I anticipate, at least as far as the virus goes, that we'll see volatility around that start to normalize as we head into the second quarter. Now that I stress around that because there's other things going on um, in the global economy. Yeah, so I mean, do you, is this going to be a news-driven cycle or do you think you know, there, there may be some broader trends that the market will start looking at? Well, I, I think that the, the biggest um, you know, sort of uh, risk right now to the global economy is not uh, the coronavirus is certainly an unfortunate downside risk, a negative shock that the <coughs> global economy is contending with. But uh, the bigger uh, risk as far as the global economy goes right now is where we're at in the cycle, uh, looking at exhausted central bank policy accommodation, exhausted government stimulus, and um, having to throw more right now in a place where you know there's not really a lot left in the tank. And so where will we be into the second and third quarter and looking out uh, with policy accommodation, government stimulus exhausted, and um, you know future negative shocks to come, which there will be. That's quite a gloomy picture in many ways, isn't it? The fact that you know, the, the, the war chest is bare. I mean, what sort of thing do you expect to see over the coming months in terms of monetary and fiscal response? Well, uh, we've seen this week is actually a good example of, of maybe what we can expect. Uh, you know, we see that when we look at the central banks this week and the action that we've seen, you know, the RBA went first and then the Fed had to go right after with 50 basis point cut. And then that was followed up Bank of Canada, we saw. Uh, but we're not seeing the two currencies that have outperformed over the past uh, week or so have been the yen and the euro. And when you look at those two currencies and those economies, those are two economies with central banks that do not have do not have the ability or the flexibility, given where we're at with negative interest rate policy there, uh, to move. And because of that, perhaps somewhat counterintuitively, but because of the yield differential, um, those currencies have been outperforming. Um, and so I see a, a scenario going forward where, uh, whereby we, we might see major currency outperformance relative to the risk-correlated commodity FX, emerging market FX. Uh, but when we talk about the US dollar, uh, I think that we're in a situation where we could see 
see the other major currencies benefiting relative to the dollar looking out. Uh, the dollar might perform okay against the risk-correlated effects, but we could be shifting into a scenario uh, where we start to see the dollar underperform relative to the other major currencies. And we need to remember the U.S. administration and its soft dollar policy initiative. Well, let's, yeah, let's put it this way. There'll be one person in the uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue who'll be very happy if the dollar gets softer, that's for sure. Um, in terms of the... Uh, I mean, I, I, I always find it interesting when you say you get a central bank announcement everyone says, oh, the Fed have um, cut by 50 basis points in the middle of their meeting cycle to uh, calm markets down. The last thing I think calms markets down is anything emergency or, or intermediate. I mean, are these cuts helping, do you think? Uh, so I, I would agree with that sentiment. I um, left scratching my head with the decision to go. And, and it's not like it, there wasn't a decision that was coming in the weeks ahead. There is a decision that's scheduled mm. for March. Um, and so uh, it is a difficult thing to try to digest. The only thing um, that you could say is that uh, clearly there's a lot of market pressure. There's still an expectation that the Fed is going to cut additionally um, in a couple of weeks. And so I think that the Fed uh, was feeling the pressure. And we, we know over the past decade plus since the onset of the crisis that as far as forward guidance goes, it hasn't been that reliable. And the market has been, you know, basically the Fed has bowed to the pressures of the market. And so the market was calling for rate cuts. The Fed knew that it needed to act, and um, it probably was trying to get ahead of it a little bit uh, because it wanted to you know, be able to act again in March. And so I think a lot of that plays into it. Put a mail trading hat on. <clears throat> I love it when central banks go random. Creates volatility. <laughs> um, I mean, on which note then? So <clears throat> regular listeners will know that I live in Australia, um, and Australia has been um, blighted with drought a serious drought for the last two, three years. And then about a month and a half ago, um, half the country was flooded. Um, and obviously those of us on the coast celebrated there's still drought inland. I, I do need to mention that. But um, there was a real sense. It was my first, my personally, my first real sense of elation at actually seeing a weather event. So the question is, David, did you feel something similar when the market started kicking off two weeks ago? <laughs> So the simple answer is yes, of course. Look, as a simple exchange operator, we love volatility. And ultimately, it doesn't matter whether the euro or the dollar is going up or down as long as it moves. Mm. You know that. But look, I think we have to have a, a note of caution. And all the exchange groups and the ECNs that are celebrating record days. So at LMAX, we had a record day, 36 yards uh, last Friday. ADV, the last couple of weeks at 25 yards. Uh, which is well up from the sort of monthly average of 19. So that's great, but ultimately it's a rising tide. And what worries me about volatility is that there's always a knock-on effect. You know, a recession or a downturn or an economic setback is good for no one, and that includes, includes us. If clients lose money, um, if companies go into liquidation, that is not good for us in the long term. Mm. As you know, I've got a Asia-Pacific hub, which is centered in Singapore, and I cover the whole region. We've had a relatively a poor first quarter. Now, it's always poor because you've got Chinese New Year. Yeah. But how much was that exacerbated by coronavirus? And moreover, I haven't been able to prospect in Asia-Pacific for now going on 10 weeks. Mm. So that knock-on effect for me will be Q3, Q4. Yeah. I'm not alone. And then I look at the real economy. So 
it's all great. Us, you know, capital markets type type saying, oh yeah, we had a you know, wonderful week, wonderful day, lots of volatility. Everyone's doing well. But you know, I have a friend, for example, in the travel industry, been going for twenty years. Yeah. Quite simply, his business came to a halt. Right. The phone stopped ringing. No one's booking holidays. So, and there's lots of other mm. entities and groups like that around the place. So, if this continues for too long, then all of us will catch a cold. You're looking at a different version of 2008. So, you know, I'm hoping that we get we get on top of this. I'm hoping the news hysteria calms down. Of course, I want to maintain some market volatility, but I'd like it to be policy led. Yeah. And if you like, global transaction led rather than led by fear. That kind of highlights the, the, the problem or the dichotomy we have in markets, though, because, I mean, um, obviously, as someone who is very much in the dinosaur camp, you know, I traded through the 80s and 90s through crises, and the global economy was falling apart of the seams. The UK economy was falling apart of the seams. I don't think I ever had a better year. <laughs> and, it, and it's one of those problems. Here. So a lot of your customers sitting there going like, Oh, that's you know that's really taken the heat off me in terms of my performance for this year because you know there are people out there that have made probably their first nine months budget yeah. in the last in the last month. Yeah. So there is that dichotomy, isn't it? Like you know, obviously it's, a, it's, a, it's an important point you make around the business impact because to most of your customers the business impact won't be felt. The business impact is going to be positive. So it'll be interesting to see how that does develop. Um, Policy led moves in markets. Joel, can we really expect that given we've had policy-led initiatives for the last like three years and last time I checked, nothing happened? <laughs> well, well, to David's point, um, you know, uh, there is the right kind of volatility and we certainly didn't need to have it in the form of a uh, virus. Um, yeah. But I think, I think at this point, like it or not, um, we are, and many traders have been waiting for um, after, you know, the past decade of, of, of super low, record low volatility when you look at a lot of the current markets and um, I think that we are headed to a scenario where we are going to see um, sort of a breakdown in this kind of uh, you know one-dimensional market where everything is kind of you know contingent on what the Fed says and what the S&P 500 does so yeah I do think that we're headed for a situation where we're going to break away from that a little bit and we're going to start to see a little bit more let's call it healthy <laughs> volatility yeah I don't think there's one thing to me signifies the modern foreign exchange market more than the phrase the right type of volatility. <laughs> the right type of client, the right type exactly. of flow, the right type of volatility. I mean, yeah, we've all had the cherry picking flow and cherry picking things. We're now cherry picking our volatility. And you're right. I mean, I get this from a lot of people saying, you know, you must have had a great week last week. Oh, mate, I got absolutely killed, like, you know, getting picked off left, right, and centre. You know, it's horrible. It's not the right kind of volatility. I think, well, at least it's moving. Yeah. And what it is, I think, is actually probably to my, I guess my argument would be, it's actually showing a weakness in the business model. You spent the last three years going to one model. Mm. You need to have a, a, a multilateral model if you're going to survive in financial markets generally. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, taking the, the, the human element out of it, so I'm just looking at it as a pure exchange operator or pure FX player, it's been an interesting two weeks and yeah. long may that continue. One of the problems we have actually is this low interest rate environment. I mean, 
it's probably my misfortune that you know we established ourselves in 2011. So the last decade's been the, the yes. lowest interest rate environment ever. <laughs> so which Einstein decided to launch an exchange group a decade ago? Uh, low interest rates and low volatility. Well done, Mercer. Um, but so timing is everything, Dave. I go back, back to you. You know, I was also you know uh, in and around banks in the in the 90s, and we made fortunes in the 97 Asian crisis and lost fortunes in the 98. Russian crisis so I crave higher interest rates I crave yeah. those 1% shock moves you know all we've been seeing recently is 15 basis point cuts I mean how is any FX market supposed to change based on 15 basis points you need to be careful though because one of my <laughs> one of my abiding memories of the day Sterling dropped out the ERM in 1992 yeah. was a certain trader we won't mention his name because he's still in the industry um, on news at 10 that night and the camera had been doing a massive interview with his boss which was completely cut in favour of 30 seconds with this guy on the floor going like so how's your day been been a great day (laughs) (laughs) oh really so the Bank of England raised interest rates by 5% everyone's mortgage is up by 5% more but you've had a great day yeah made loads yeah (laughs) so you need we need to be a little bit careful on that one I guess that's why we're not loved yeah (laughs) yes exactly yeah I mean David, to your earlier point in terms of like we're hitting the highs, I mean, you know, obviously you're not alone. Um, you know, you're an ex, um, CBOE, FX, uh, FX Spot Stream, I'm sure others are out there as well, hit new peaks for the day. They've hit, they haven't, I mean, some of them hit new monthly ADVs. Sure. Um, what was interesting to me was it, most models reported the uptick. Mm-hmm. But I kind of get this sense that what we're seeing now is the market kind of bifurcating towards where, yes, there'll still be relationship disclosed trading, mm-hmm. but that the group of platforms that are succeeding in that will probably, you know, shrink just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I kind of see the same on firm liquidity. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where the um, hybrid model sits. I'm going to put this in my column this week. I think this hybrid model where some of it's last week, some of it isn't, becomes a bit of an issue. Looking back maybe beyond the last two weeks, including that in it, but what sort of links, I mean, is there a real links between the spikes in trade on on a firm exchange like LMAX and volatility, or is there actually other factors at play? Unfortunately, yes. So my challenge is to increase (coughs) volumes ADV in low vol markets and high vol markets. The reality is we do best when the market moves. So... 40% 40% of all my bank taker flow comes over the hourly fixes. Yeah. That's disproportionate amount of time. So it's a, whatever that would be, in 10% of the day, 5 to 10% of the day, I do 40% of the flow. I need to compete when the markets are calm. And the reality is that at that time, real money, real money and proprietary trading firms themselves they just need to get on. They need a certainty of execution. And certainly, if they're going to miss a price, they miss it instantly, not within you know, 50 milliseconds or 100 milliseconds, because that's the opportunity cost. They can't afford that. So absolutely, I'm seeing more and more. You know, A few banks have shown me their client reports recently, typically over, over fixes, um, over numbers. I'm in the top two or three. But maybe on a, on a daily basis, I'll drop down. Yeah. I can show you right now, there'll be a last look price in, in a quiet market, which is choice or inverted. 
in a central limit order book, that's never going to be the case, no. right? Where it's lit. And what you see is what you get, right? So there's always a protective price there. But I think what you're seeing is that the sophisticated trading groups understand the certainty of execution and understand that it's a lower cost to trade on central limit order books, firm liquidity when they need it. But at other times, you know, back to your, you know, your, your hybrid model, if I'm a bank, if I've got a lot of liquidity there, I'm just going to go to the best price in my stack when volatility is low, if I know that that stream is going to have a high fill rate. So mm. my challenge is to compete and spread 24 hours a day and compete on fill rate 24 hours a day. But hopefully, I think there's certainly we've felt that wave. All my growth over the last 18 months has been from larger, well-known shops mm. trading in size. So is this, is this then part of the sort of... Oh, I, 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 I'll use the wrong phrase. It's not the first time on this podcast. The learning phase of the market in terms of actually, you know, do you take events like this and go, this is great because, and I'm sure it'll be the same with matching and EBS, you know, which, you know, similar sort of models. You look at it and go, these people look at it and go, this is great because this actually gives an, another audience, another reminder of the benefits of firm liquidity. And therefore, when things quiet down a bit, there may be that Tempson increase residue that stays with you. Yeah. I think, yes, I mean, that's generally what happens. So what I expect, if I look at our, our growth, every time we hit a new peak, typically it takes me three to six months, depends on market volatility, to create a new peak. But the high watermark is now up, so the average then just ticks up. Yeah. And what happens is, the message needs to get out there. So if I'll be honest with you, you know, three years ago, no asset manager would ever see a bank report with our brand on it. Mm. They just weren't plugged in. Yeah. Now they're plugged into most bank algos, not all of them. So no, they no. start seeing it and then it's become self-fulfilling. You know, one of the largest asset managers said that, look, David, you do 10% um, of my flow over fixes. And that's obviously I'm saying, well, it should be 20%. But the reason it's only 10 is because Good luck with that one. <laughs> I've only got 50% of the best bank algos. Yeah. I need to work and get in those other ones. But the more that those clients start asking their provider, their bank, to plug me in, let me see firm only, let me see central limit order book liquidity, despite everything that's said out there, there is only three, right? Mm. Two, I call them legacy venues, you call them primary venues, and, <laughs> and they'll max exchange. So if you want certainty of execution and you want to trade in an, in an exchange style, you know, you need to plug me into your stack. At which point, every sales and relationship person in LMAT's group has now reached for the phone. <laughs> <laughs> There's ways to send a message. <laughs> Join us in Mexico City on Wednesday, March 25th for Profit and Loss Latin America 2020. We have a great program including a closing keynote from Juan Garcia of Banco de Mexico on recent developments in the Mexican financial markets and the challenges to come. View the full agenda and register for the event at profit-loss.com events or email jack at profit-loss.com for sponsorship opportunities. So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about there was like in terms of like LP pricing, because I think... To me, it kind of reflects how much better, particularly the banks, 
have become pricing. You know, we've seen a few banks upgrade their pricing engines over the last couple of years. Some are a little bit behind the curve still, but most of them, I think, have got to what I would say is a competitive space with those previously high-frequency non-bank LPs that are just dedicated everything to the pricing engine. Um, I would argue three years ago when we had an event like this, the firm liquidity pools only saw posted interest. Mm-hmm. They didn't see sort of streaming prices. Mm-hmm. My sense now is, is that some of the banks going, actually, this is a good place for me to post because I can react in time. Is that a reality or am I still sort of just making things up? It's becoming that way. Right. Look, to be fair again to the oldest and biggest legacy venue, they started as interest only. Yeah. And it operates. And that's what we all crave. But when you're smaller, when you set up, no one's putting interest because they don't want to hang themselves out there. <clears throat> so um, you've got to get bigger and then people are happy to post interest. You know, I'm fortunate I have a lot of um, dolly in passive interest um, on a daily basis, you know, makes up a large percent of our, a large percent of our flow. But it's happening more and more. And likewise, to the technology point, I don't see much of a difference now between bank and non-bank. So they are no, happy. No. They are, look, it was, might have been a fair criticism of them if, you know, five years ago, but technology-wise and knowledge-wise, um, the liquidity streams you see on LMAX exchange are identical non-bank and bank. Mm. And some of the smartest guys in FX work in banks. I mean, yeah, yeah. very good prices. And they know somewhere like LMAX exchange, they can post their orders, Two-sided, two-sided, market-making prices, cancel and replace in 70 microseconds. And that's important. Historically, just the way the SAC was built, it might have taken them, you know, an update of 100 millis or 200 millis mm. to replace. And then, of course, someone's quicker yeah, yeah. and they're going to take them to school. Now, I don't think that's happening as much. But certainly, look, one of the best um, heads of heads of Alberta Bank said to me six years ago, look, David, it's pretty simple. If I want to make markets, I want last look. If I want, if I want to take, I want to trade on firm. <laughs> so ultimately, you'd be the same. I'd be cake the same. and eat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be the same if you offer me that optionality. I'll take it. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm, I must confess, I still have nightmares thinking about what would have happened had I turned around to one of my voice brokers in the 90s and gone like, nah, sorry, mate, don't want to do that trade. There would have been four people in a transit van with crowbars waiting outside of me at five o'clock. Um, perhaps that's, maybe that's the option. But the other thing that happens, I must say... That I'm not advocating violence. With the electronification of the market and the new breed of market making is, everyone that looks at each other and says, you've got to trust your prices. So yeah. I had technically... What I would say was an out-trade, out yeah. but it was pretty small in terms of P&L. In the old days, I think everyone would have re-rated. I can't re-rate. No, no. Right? You guys, the, the, the two banks at play have to agree with each other. In the old days, mm-hmm. I think they would have agreed with me and said, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Now, to be honest, both sides just say, it is what it is. So uh, everyone stands and falls by the price they put out on, on many platforms. Don't we? We cannot get into that moral hell <laughs> by pulling the hand, by pulling the bin on the hand grenade that is repapering trades because I've only got we haven't got that long on the podcast. That could be one for another day, maybe. Um, Joel, I mean, obviously, from David's point of view and from you know platforms' point of view generally, uh, most traders' point of view, the um, the return of volatility has been positive, notwithstanding the drivers behind it. 
Um, first of all, do you sort of get a sense in terms of how long it would take to normalise life with um, COVID-19, to use its proper name? Um, and secondly, what do you think... What sort of market reaction do you reckon we'd get? What would the snapback be if suddenly someone turns around and goes, hey, everybody, we've got an antidote? Right. So I think, um, you know, it's going to, it's going to, we, we should expect that this will play out. You look at China kind of as that example. We've seen they've got kind of a head start on this, and if you want to call it that. And so uh, the expectation is that we're going to continue to see this spread um, around the globe, and we're going to see more cases emerge yep. in the United States. We just saw California declare a state of emergency. Uh, we've seen in Iran, um, things are getting pretty awful. And so um, I, I suspect, though, that we're going to though, start to see things peak out um, globally as we kind of head into the second quarter. Yeah. Um, and so... Does it become just a number? What's that? Does it become just a number? Yeah, we become kind of immune to it at some stage? I think so. I think yeah. so. I think that, uh, again, a lot of this... Um, uh, now, again, this is an unknown virus. Yeah. But I think there is a lot of panic about what exactly it is. And if it, you know, ends up being what potentially it could be, it's, it's, it's obviously not a good thing, but it's not as dramatic as, uh, the, you know, people perceive it to be. Mm. I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, the, 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 if you're trying to do some analog analysis, you know, you could compare it to the Spanish flu, um, you know, but hopefully now there have been some, you know, there have been some cases that we've heard of recurrences. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, mortality rates are not off the charts. And um, uh, again, as we get into warmer climate, um, I think that this is something that's going to be around. I don't think it's going to necessarily run away, but it's going to be something that people are going to be a little bit more used to. And, and so we'll see that fade. As far as the vaccine goes, I think it just plays into that. I think that there will be a vaccine at some point, maybe next season. I don't think it's going to be today or tomorrow. There have been reports, but uh, that's, that takes a long, long time to test. And so I, I would expect that would come out in about a year. But I think that the market, as the market always does, you know, starts to price all of this in. Um, mm. and, and so, again, into the second quarter, I think this theme around the coronavirus uh, will, will fade and we'll have to deal with other um, other issues. So you kind of see it fading away, not totally. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not um, taking it lightly, but you, you see the issue becoming diluted in market thinking rather than a news alert that suddenly sends everyone into a buying frenzy in stocks and so on and, and probably buying the dollar again, thanks, thanks, which won't make Donald happy, but never mind. <laughs> no, I, I definitely anticipate there will be volatility around the event over the coming weeks. I think that that is, um, you know, a very strong possibility. But yes, as we kind of move out, um, I think that this, this is not an end of the world, I don't believe, um, no. you know, a virus. And I think that, um, you know, as we do as human beings, we get used to something and then we kind of uh, move forward. Does that make you happy, David? The fact that we will, you know, I mean, we'll get an end to it, but I mean, obviously there will be volatility around that. I mean, do you think, is this something that platforms have to prepare for? Because if it was a sort of single news item event where someone turned around and said, hey, everybody, we think we've got this thing beaten, you know, the WHO or something like that, um, that would create a serious market reaction. Mm -hmm. Do platforms need to start thinking in terms of capacity? We all do. Yeah. We scale, um, I don't know about everyone else, but we scale for 10x. Yeah. So the Fed announcement the other day, we hit our largest ever peak on a millisecond basis. Um, 
on a second basis, you're probably looking at something like 100,000 orders going through. Uh, on a millisecond basis, you're, you're talking a few thousand. So we all scale for that. I'm knocking on wood. So far, so good. And certainly if you look at the the really big players, look, and you know who they are, yeah. right? the guys in Chicago, the guys that are worth you know, $80 billion, <clears throat> they scale many, many fold. Mm. Um, so, but there's no doubt, and I look at the FX market, the update rate, the number of orders you're sending through to print the same number of trades or the same volume is a multiple of what it was when we first talked maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And look, again, the market is a snapshot. Is it a multiple times. from two or three years ago? Yes. Okay, so it's still growing exponentially. Yes, because look, you think about it, you know, when, when you change your price, so in the old days it pulsed 10 times a second. Yeah. Right? Now, now it pulses 200 times a second, mm. right? Uh, from the oldest venues, we're live streaming. So yeah. if you like, we can update every microsecond or every millisecond. As we become more relevant, we fit into more pricing engines and people update their prices more frequently. So certainly every time the market data providers increase their speed, and every time I add more liquidity, so you update more, uh, more liquidity providers that update more frequently, then yes, the order rate goes through the roof. So certainly my capacity now is seven times what it was five years ago. Are we heading to microwave towers? <laughs> we're already there. In FX? Yeah, we're already there. Are we? Yeah. It's, look, well, that's depressing. It's there. <laughs> and there's, look, we talked about it uh, recently. There's faster things coming. So yeah, yeah. the best yeah. the best low latency shops, the best proprietary trading shops are already ahead of the game and everyone knows that. Microwave is very much 2015. Um, the next thing is, you know, one of Mr. Musk's great ideas is Starlink, um, and which is a constellation of satellites. Yeah. Whatever it is, I can't remember how many kilometers up. I have to ask my uh, my CTO, but it's something like thirty-four kilometers high in the air. That could potentially cut latency between London and New York by ten percent. So that's what's coming ahead in the next the next decade. Remember, the race is to, is to zero in terms of latency, but we'll, you'll never get to zero. No, no. Okay, um, Joel. Just wanted to close out. With, it's more of a philosophical question. In many ways, I mean, as a currency strategist, I mean, especially links to what David's saying there in terms of speed of trading, um, more automated trading. It strikes me that what we do now is we get reaction, nothing. Reaction, nothing in terms of like market moves. Does that make the life of a currency strategist that much harder, given the fact that you, you, know, you, you have to really predict events, you can't trade them? Yeah, well, I mean, I've always uh, tried to look at the markets um, and kind of take a bigger uh, picture view of things. It's, it's very difficult. I've never been a fan of um, focusing in on, you know, the day-to-day um, and, and try to respond to what's going on on a day-to-day basis in, in terms of the bigger uh, picture. And I think that helps. I think that, you know, people sometimes get a little bit too caught up in, you know, uh, you know percentage move here and there um, when it really doesn't mean all that much. So, um, you know, try to keep up on a day-to-day basis, certainly. Uh, but, you know, for me, it's always about you know, kind of going back and looking at what the bigger and cross-checking with the bigger picture macro themes. 
You are definitely a forwards trader. <laughs> <laughs> you, but you're actually, I, I'd say, you know, I just say, for once, I'd agree with you, Mr. Lambert. Um, <laughs> it's a first. For once, there we go. <laughs> Put the flags out, everyone. Um, now, certainly what we've seen over the last 12 months is sporadic volatility. And that's very hard to manage. One, from a risk-taking perspective, yep. from a trading perspective, and two, from an exchange or a business perspective. Because do I scale for... The business we've had this week, um, do I scale my technology for that? Do I, just, do I scale my distribution team for that? Mm. Or do I scale for what we saw at the back end of Q4? When I thought the FX world was just grinding to a halt in Q4. Yeah. We had a reasonable Q2, Q3. Q4 was like nothing happening. Mm. So these sporadic bouts of volatility and these you know, skittish markets are very hard for everyone. I but I will, I, yeah. I will add that you know some of the nice things about this is that when you do get periods of super low volatility, it does open up windows and doors to other things that you may not have recognized, and uh, there's wonderful opportunity uh, that you know comes from that. And you know, and you know, the other point is that if you can be in a position with a business where you're surviving in you know the most difficult of times, then how well positioned are you? Uh, I think very well positioned. So mm. um, you know, there are some a lot of if you can look at the disadvantages and, and see the advantages around them you know, take advantage, then um, that's, you know, how you put yourself in the best possible position. Yeah. I, know, I, w- I would always say that I think a business and even a trader is defined by how it copes with adversity or they cope with adversity. Um, you know, you're defined by your bad days. Generally speaking, you stay alive, which is what it's all about. Um, hopefully we'll, we will stay alive for another <laughs> week at least. Um, David, Joel, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast this week. Thank you. Um, and to our listeners, thanks very much for listening. And we will, we think, be back next week. Thanks for listening.